and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Well, if we thought things couldn't get any worse, tensions further intensify in Palestine with Israel's latest program against the Palestinians. From endorsing a settler rampage in the areas of Huwara and Nablus to this week denying the existence of Palestinians. The escalations are not surprising, while the question of Palestinian sovereignty remains unanswered. This week on Accent of Women, we revisit a lecture delivered by Noura Erakat, a Palestinian-American human rights attorney and assistant professor at George Mason University. Erakat delivered the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture in July 2018, and her visit to Australia was hosted by APAN. The speech is called Palestine in the Age of Trump. Though this speech was delivered five years ago, you'll notice that not much has changed. In late September 2017, US President Donald Trump called on NFL National Football League owners to fire players who took a knee during the national anthem. It was yet another Trump display of vulgar disrespect and abuse. Late-night comedy show host Trevor Noah, in response to this, made light of the situation, putting Trump's call in context with the critique of ESPN correspondent Jameel Hill, who was put on probation because she criticized Trump by the news network, by the sports news network, as well as mass protests across the U.S. Trevor Noah summed up his segment with a poem. He said, it's wrong to do it in the tweets, You cannot do it on the field. You cannot do it if you've kneeled. And don't do it if you're rich. You ungrateful son of a... No, no, you weren't. That wasn't the calm response. (laughs) Because there's one thing that's a fact. You cannot protest if you're black. And in that moment of sarcastic commentary that has come to epitomize our most trusted news sources, our comedy news sources, our parodies, I was struck with the parallels of my own experience as a Palestinian. Like other Palestinian activists, our protest seems to generate more ire than the conditions propelling us into action. Almost everything that we do in protest has been framed as a risk, a threat, a potential lawsuit that for generating discomfort, as if we, marginalized communities, are mere shadows of an actual body that experiences pain. Consider that during the height of one of the largest prisoner strikes in Palestine in April 2017, when 1,000 prisoners inflicted harm on their own bodies to demand basic rights, the Israeli government declared that it would discipline the prisoners for their deviance. Instead of lauding Palestinians, long and excessively chastised for failing to be more like Gandhi, Israel's intelligence minister demanded, quote, the death penalty for terrorists who joined the hunger strike. In the United States, in July 2017, the Senate proposed anti-BDS legislation to make participation in the boycott of Israel a felony punishable by minimum civil penalty, $250,000, and a maximum criminal penalty of $1 million and 20 years in prison. Far from applauding our global, nonviolent, 
grassroots movement, Netanyahu has declared it the second most significant threat to Israel after a nuclear-capable Iran. 22 states have passed anti-BDS legislation to trample from the top down what they cannot defeat from the bottom up. As I listened to Trevor Noah and witnessed yet another attack on black protest, I was struck by the resonance of Israeli and US tactics, government and societal, that criticize and criminalize protest in order to obscure the root causes of violence that shape our lives and as a means to perpetuate an oppressive status quo. Intersectionality invites us to think about the entwinements of our oppression, not the sameness of our condition, about the similarities in the modalities of repression. It invites us to think about the entwinements of our liberation as inextricable and mutually reinforcing rather than mutually exclusive. Thinking Palestine intersection intersectionally is obviously not new, but present and re recent circumstances have made it more urgent and compelling. And so what I'd like to do in the rest of the presentation is to trace the junctures on the ground in activism as well as academic knowledge production that have led to this current political moment when we are thinking to and responding to Palestine in an intersectional framework and not just a national liberation struggle for Palestinians, but something that represents liberation for all of us. Since armed Palestinian factions took, took the helm of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1968, the Palestinian struggle for liberation has been part of, and often central to, global third world struggles against colonialism and neocolonialism. Throughout the 1970s, the non-aligned movement considered the liberation of Palestine from Israeli domination as part of the same agenda to liberate Mozambique and Angola from Portuguese rule, as well as South Africa and Namibia from European Afrikaner and German Afrikaner rule, respectively. The PLO was a member of the NAM and a leading force in establishing the 1977 additional protocols that legitimated the right to use armed force against oppressive colonial structures and subject it to legal regulation. It was the PLO that was part of the movement that basically brought non-state use of force within the ambit of legal regulation. So it shifted from being criminal and terroristic to actually being legitimate warfare. Palestine is the only nation among these nations that has yet to achieve liberation, and that is largely because of the US's unequivocal economic, diplomatic, and military support to Israel. For a progressive left movement concerned with internationalism then and now, the US's unequivocal support for Israel is emblematic of everything that is wrong with US foreign policy. In 1975, and at the height of the rise of the Global South, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution declaring Zionism as a form of racism and as a part of a broader global effort to undermine racism, particularly as practiced in apartheid South Africa. The 1993 Oslo Accords and the peace process it ushered marked a significant shift away from this framework. Not only did the PLO rescind the resolution as a condition for entering into a peace agreement, the peace process framework shifted the global perception of the Palestinian struggle 
from one against settler colonial elimination and domination to one about peacemaking. It reframed the entire issue as a conflict between two equal parties that required compromise by both sides to achieve a resolution. The shift was palpable in grassroots efforts featuring dialogue groups as well as in knowledge production. The start of the Second Intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, planted the seeds for yet a new shift. The first seven years of peace had increased settlement growth in the West Bank by 100% and introduced a new system of bypass roads and checkpoints and demonstrated the permanence of interim agreements in the form of autonomy rather than independence. And I want to emphasize this point. So much of our public advocacy focuses on and emphasizes, look at the bypass road where you have two different colored um, uh, license plates to determine who can drive there. Look at these checkpoints that makes the distance, for example, between Bethlehem and Ramallah twice as long or hours more long. I wanted to say Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but most Bethlehemites can probably not enter Jerusalem at all. My point is to emphasize that this system of checkpoints and bypass roads is a product of the peace process. It's ushered in by the 1995 um, accords known as Oslo II. We didn't have this system before. The occupation was marked by external domination. I think this is a point that we miss when we overemphasize you know, our desire for peace and our, and our lamentation at this system of, of, of spatial separation and segregation and fail to note that it's not in spite of Oslo but because of Oslo that we have these conditions. The collapse of the Camp David talks in 2000 precipitated the renewed uprising, which was much more militarized than its predecessor in the late 80s. Israel responded with unprecedented force unavailable to it under occupation law. It created new law, literally created new law for fighting terrorists and in effect a new means of maintaining colonial dominance. It didn't declare its confrontation with Palestinians as war because if it did, it would have to adopt one of two frameworks. Either it's a non-international armed conflict in which case it could do almost anything it wants and it's called a civil war or it would have to recognize this as an international armed conflict against guerrilla fighters, right? The former it didn't want to adopt because then it would actually have to recognize that it oversees a singular apartheid regime. If it's a civil war, it actually has Palestinians in its jurisdictions that it excludes from its citizenry. And in the latter framework of recognizing it as an international armed conflict, it would have to recognize that Palestinians are a people with a right to self-determination, which it's denied. So instead, Israel created a new category called armed conflict short of war. Because if it, if it just recognized that it was an occupying power, it can't use lethal force. It had to use just law enforcement force. So it creates this whole new category that the entire world rejects, including the United States. In September 2001, Al-Qaeda uh, attacks the United States um, and creates a new set of laws even for the US. At this point, the US breaks with a historic opposition of recognizing um, non-state activity as, as within the, the realm of criminal law 
to declaring in the Security Council and UN Security Council resolutions 1368 and 1373 that the Al-Qaeda attacks constituted a use of force that triggers Article 51 or the right to self-defense for the US to use force in response. What does all that mean in law? It means that the US is shifting from criminal domestic policing of what it considers terrorist activities to militarized force against those activities. What does that do on the global scale is that it gives the belligerent the opportunity to use the military force, but makes sure that the, that the target can't use that force in response. The distinction here and what the International Court of Justice determines in its 2004 advisory opinion on the root of the wall is that Israel, because Israel tries to draw on these Security Council resolutions, that Israel cannot do that because Israel is responsible. It is actually obligated to protect and is responsible for the law and order in the occupied territories from where its uh, threats emerge. But of course, Israel keeps pushing back and is creating new law that now we recognize and that's obviously captured when we think about what it's doing is the use of extrajudicial assassinations but instead, we know them now as targeted killings. With the siege and murder of Yasser Arafat, the peace process experiment was effectively over by 2001, notwithstanding ongoing farcical attempts to hold it up on stilts. The end of the peace process, in my opinion, has engendered two distinct trends. One is the framing of Palestine as a national security issue, and the other is the return to Palestine as a justice issue. Regarding the former, between 1990 and 1999, there was a total of 655 records, scholarly and media, framing Palestine as a security matter. But now, search in ProQuest, irregular combat, asymmetric conflict, counterterrorism, and that number skyrockets to 5,456 records between 2000 and 2009. On the ground, Israel's militarization of the conflict reached its apex when it placed Gaza under a naval blockade and land siege in 2007 and began launching large-scale military offensives against its besieged population in 2008. Israel literally transformed the tiny coastal enclave into what Professor Samara Asmir has described as a colonial laboratory for asymmetric warfare, for weapons, as well as new methods of war. The return to a justice framework collided with Israel's security approach in ways that resonated with a decades-long struggle that framed Palestinians as freedom fighters on the one hand and terrorists on the other. At the 2001 Durban Review Conference on Global Racism, a legacy of the decade against racism inaugurated in 1975, global participants highlighted Israeli apartheid as part of its anti-racist platform. Professor Nadine Nebir, along with other collaborators, led a front of these efforts by authoring a paper, The Forgotten-ism, an Arab-American woman's perspective on Zionism, racism, and sexism detailing the entwinements of feminism and the question of Palestine more generally. The paper never enjoyed the substantive engagement it deserved. The United States undermined the entire anti-racist agenda to shield Israel from accusations of apartheid and to protect itself 
from having to deal with the question of reparations, which it has still not paid out to its formerly enslaved population and their descendants. In 2005, the largest swath of Palestinian civil society organizations launched the global call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions based on a rights-based framework and inspired uh, by the global divestment movement targeting apartheid South Africa. The two trends of national security and the justice framework collided in the summer 2014 when Israel launched its most brutal uh, military offensive against Palestinians in Gaza and when the Black Lives Matter movement congealed into mass protests in Ferguson, Missouri in response to yet another state-sanctioned murder of an unarmed black boy named Michael Brown. Especially because of activism on the ground, a resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity commenced, and with it, a more acute understanding of Palestine as a case of settler colonialism and structural racialized violence. The systematic, an untenable nature of Israel's wars on the Gaza Strip, together with the most right-wing Knesset vowing there will never be a Palestinian state, ever, 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 made, which is so, I, I emphasize that because Israel keeps saying there will never be a Palestinian state, and Palestinians keep getting asked, why don't they recognize Israel as a state, even though they did that multiple times over. But this made ever more clear the fallacy of the peace process. The result was the steady ascendance of understanding Palestine within a justice framework. The resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity, which is specifically a phenomenon in North America, uh, featured delegations to the region, knowledge production, cultural work, and joint protest that culminated in the summer 2016 when the BLM endorsed BDS as part of its platform for black lives. Significantly, several establishment Zionist Jew institutions denounced the platform. It was a 36,000 word platform authored by the Movement for Black Lives in the United States about their demands of what black liberation would look like that went from police abolition, reform, education as a constitutional right, basic security to housing and food. And of that 36,000 word document, all the mainstream media emphasized was the BLM's endorsement of BDS and its characterization of the conditions of Palestine as genocide. And slammed, slammed the movement, rescinded funding, canceled events, threatened them, and I must tell you that in this moment, I, they weren't ready for this. The movement did not expect this backlash. And when they got it, they convened a call, the authors convened a call with all of the organizations that had signed onto the platform and gave everybody, something like 200 organizations, the opportunity to pull out of the platform. The BLM said it wouldn't pull out, but gave everyone the opportunity to pull out. And only one organization took that opportunity. The rest stood firm. This was yet another instance of shutting down critically principled conversations uh, when they refused to exceptionalize and absolve Israel's racism. Uh, the BLM's endorsement is pivotal and the reason for major cultural boycott victories in recent history, including Ms. Lauren Hill's cancellation of her concert in Tel Aviv and NFL defensive lineman Michael Bennett's decision not to travel to Israel as part of a government-sponsored junket. Both Hill and Bennett didn't know a lot 
about Palestine, but they knew that the BLM, that the movement for black liberation in the United States saw its future entwined with Palestinian liberation. When Bennett announced his cancellation, he wrote a Dear World letter, and in it he writes, quote, I know that this will anger some people and inspire others, but please know that I did this not for you, but to be in accord with my own conscience. Like 1968 Olympian John Carlos always says, there is no partial commitment to justice. You are either in or you're out. Well, I'm in. This brings us to the present moment, marked by the ascendance of Donald J. Trump and a complete and unapologetic embrace of white supremacy. The Trump administration has waged a barefaced and frontal assault against indigenous, black, Muslim, and Latino communities. It has fomented hostility against Iran, though I think by accident has achieved some sort of rapprochement with North Korea rolled back a commitment to climate change and emboldened white supremacist movements in the United States. So even if the state's not doing it, the spike in the number of, of white communities and individuals who feel like they can call the police on black people doing the most basic things, like distributing newspapers, having a barbecue, all without a permit, and not understanding that when you call the police, on black people in the United States, it becomes a 50-50 chance of life and death based on a, a single unexpected move. But it's emboldened them to do that because if the president and the government does it, then it's okay for them to have these feelings. And this reflects, frankly, the inadequacy of the law in order to actually dismantle racism. In the United States, we never dismantled racism. We had an enfranchisement law in 1965, and the end of de jure segregation in the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That's it. We removed impediments to equality, but we didn't ensure equality or equity. And we're seeing it. We're seeing the inadequacy of that kind of law-based approach to justice. But for better or for worse, this movement and what Trump is doing in this rise in white supremacy has further entrenched the question of Palestine into a progressive left movement driven by an intersectional analysis. According to a 2016 Pew Research poll, the share of liberal Democrats who sympathize with Palestinians doubled since 2014. For the first time, more liberal Democrats are sympathetic to Palestinians than they are to Israel. And support for Israel is the least among millennials, demonstrating a telling generational gap. These are positive trends. And these trends come with tremendous responsibility and urge us to rethink the horizon of Palestinian liberation as well. For example, how might the application of an anti-racist framework unsettle a stark native settler binary between Jews and Palestinians? How has white supremacy in Israel racialized Middle Eastern Jews, for example, and forced them to deny their Arabness to pass, thus participating in what Al-Shahat, scholar Al-Shahat, has described as an exercise in self-devastation? How does that inquiry reshape coalitions committed to emancipation? Or what other responsibilities does a pro-Palestine movement in the US or in Australia have to anti-racist and settler decolonization movements? 
How are we actively and unknowingly reproducing the structures of domination even as we seek to resist them in the Middle East? These are very provocative questions and I don't have the answers for them. But one thing that I'll emphasize is that so much of the work that we do is not about having answers, but it's about asking the right questions and asking different questions. It's what Dr. Angela Davis asks us to do when we consider abolition. The worst thing that you can think of and respond when you think of prison abolition is, but what will we do with all those criminals? The question that we should be asking is, how did certain crimes become commensurate with the punishment that's ascribed to them? How are certain people criminalized no matter what they do? And how is punishment needed irrespective of, of what you actually do, but for the very brazen uh, act of existing? And so I urge us to ask these different questions at the very least. And from asking those questions, from organizing in that way, the answers that we seek will produce themselves. And as Dr. Davis reminds us, freedom is a constant struggle. And in it, we can find the liberation we are fighting so hard to realize. Thank you. That was Noura Erekat in 2018, delivering the Edward Said Memorial Lecture in Melbourne called Palestine in the Age of Trump. And that's all we've got time for today. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kungeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.